welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunlight. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a story about a proposed expansion of mining in the town of Sand Lake. Then Ukraine is the topic of our weekly peace bucket. Later on, Cena joins us to talk with Alex Briggs about his upcoming presentation on biochar. Then Brea Barthel talks about books for children. And we end with a report by Willie Terry about the Capital District Area Labor Federation third annual day of service at the Regional Food Bank of Northeastern New York on MLK Day. But first, headlines. Seven area students involved with Youth FX have produced a photo exhibit inspired by social justice photojournalist Gordon Park. The student's work is on display at the Albany Institute of History of Art through February 17th, alongside Park's exhibit, I Too Am am American. The students depict the urban landscape along with portrayals of Black women in mass media and culture. The State Senate Judiciary Committee has voted 10 to 9 against advancing the nomination of Hector LaSalle as Chief Justice of the state's highest court, blocking him from moving to a full Senate vote. LaSalle had been opposed by many progressive, especially unions and criminal justice and women rights groups. Governor Hochul is reportedly considering a legal challenge to try to force a vote by the full Senate. Pushed by stronger new federal rules, the New York State Museum and the University of Albany are turning over more of its collections of Native American human remains and funerary objects to the Stockbridge-Munsee community, Delaware Nation, and Delaware Tribe of Indians. The Times Union reported that the Institute had previously classified the remains and objects as culturally unidentifiable. The TU reports that due to a deadly bird flu outbreak, the price for a dozen eggs has risen 238% um, since December 2020, costing uh, $4.25 per dozen on average last month. Prices have also risen for margarine, butter, and meat. In 2023, the USDA predicts grocery prices to increase between 3 to 4%. A new study by the Citizens Community Committee for Children finds that many families in New York are now paying so much rent that they are having trouble covering all of their children's needs, including food. In a majority of counties, which is 49, more than 20% of renters are paying more than 50% of the income of their income in rent. In every county, more than 10% of renters exceeded that threshold. The committee is lobbying for a statewide housing access voucher program to help people afford apartments. Staff members of the state assembly are joining their Senate colleagues in an effort to form a union in response to the often grueling work conditions and low and arbitrary pay. Democratic Party leaders have not yet agreed to recognize the union. The state legislature employs around 3,500 people. 
Governor Hochul has signed the Tenant Dignity and Safe Housing Act, giving tenants the right to sue in local housing courts over neglected conditions to fix violated violations of local or state housing codes. The act also allows courts to order monetar monetary judgments or reductions in future rent for the diminished value of the property. That's it for headlines. Up first, the Sand Lake Town Board in Rensselaer County is considering allowing the riffenberg Hafe mine <clears throat> to expand by 70 acres, encroaching on hundreds of residential properties. Local residents, Tom Citrone, discusses some of the potential concerns with Mark. We're joined today by Tom Citrino, who is a neighborhood activist who is, among others, uh, raising concerns about s some proposals for related to mining in the uh, town of Sam Lake. So we've asked Tom to, to join us. So, so Tom, can you give us an introduction? What is the, the particular issue um, that people are concerned about at the moment? Sure, Mark. Um, there's a proposal in front of the town board to expand the Hafe Reifenberg mine by 70 acres on land that is not currently zoned for mining. Uh, this uh, land is in the middle of three major residential neighborhoods, uh, as is the current mine, uh, but the expansion would bring it much closer to homes and endanger people's water supply. Everybody's on wells out here, air quality, noise pollution, um, et cetera, all the problems that are associated with gravel mining. Now, I know some gravel mines, but I remember a number of decades ago being involved with the uh, gravel mine expansion uh, over there by uh, by Millers. But one of the issues at, at that point certainly was also the fact that uh, some of these mines basically use dynamite to blow blow up the, the, the shale. And, and is that an issue in, in, in this particular mine? It is. It is in this sense, although the application says they have no intention of hard rock mining. Once the town zones the land to be mined, the town loses the ability to control what kind of mining can occur on that land. That becomes the purview of DEC. And this land, the 70 acres that are, that are proposed to be added to the current mine, is rich in what's known as gray wacky, the materials that uh, many people call that gold uh, in the mining sense. It's more than just gravel. It's what's used to make asphalt and is extremely valuable. So nobody believes that once this land would be zoned for mining, that it would not result at some point in hard rock mining. Now, I, I became uh, familiar with some of these zoning concepts when I was on my town board in Post and Go, actually dealing with gravel, oh, maybe 30, 30 years ago. So one question I have is, is zoning in, in general supposed to be done, you know, pursuant to some type of comprehensive plan for the town to develop? You're not supposed to do spot zoning where you jump from exactly. parcel to parcel. So, so is this an issue with respect to this zoning reapplication? Yes, it is. In order, the town zoning code was uh, revamped in 2017, and it set up a procedure 
to uh, under which somebody that wanted to mine land in an area zoned agricultural residential, which is what this area is zoned as. And basically you have to go through a plan development district procedure. Um, and there are two stages to this procedure. We're in the first stage right now, but the first criteria you're supposed to meet is that it complies with the town's comprehensive plan. The town has a specific section of its current plan that says essentially that mining expansion should not occur uh, without balancing the needs of the surrounding neighborhoods. This application to expand this mine does not address that section of the plan, of the town's comprehensive plan, which is why it should not be allowed to even move to the second phase of what they would have to do to move on to actually mine this land. Now, I, I, I know when I was on the town board in Posenkill, many we have, I think, seven mines at that point. You know, many of these mines were actually on the town roads, and you, the town doesn't actually get anything benefit from these mines because it's gravel, so it's land. So you're just taxing land, not building. So the town doesn't get any revenues, but you, you actually incur a tremendous amount of expenses, especially because we had to maintain the roads that these massive gravel trucks were running back and forth all day long and tearing up the town, town roads. Is there any type of financial incentive that is being offered to the town to offset the, this, the, this nuisance that they want to expand? No. Absolutely not, and, and uh, the, the company that runs this mine is vehemently opposed to that kind of thought. Uh, and it's interesting that you bring up economic costs to the town. Uh, we haven't finished the study yet, but we have looked at the taxes paid by the landowners of the area that's currently being mined in the area that they want to mine. It's basically four pieces of property versus the several hundred uh, properties that pay taxes in town. Essentially, the homes, this is a, an approximation, but the assessed value of the homes that surround these mines is about $100 million, and they pay about 100 times the taxes that the four property owners pay for uh, mining the land. Almost all of them have agricultural exemptions, so they're even taxed at a lower rate than a residence. Right. Now, can you walk us through, um, you know, the, the process? Who, who actually, you know, there's various town committees, there's the town yeah. board. Who gets to make the decisions, and what so far has been their response to this proposal? Okay, the town board makes the final decision. Um, this uh, proposal was put on a town board agenda two days before Thanksgiving uh, without really any notice. Uh, it was then uh, passed by the town board at that meeting. And in, in the town adopted a resolution that said this application meets the requirements of the town zoning code for the first phase and sent it to the planning board. Um, so there was real no notice to 
the public or the town residents that this was going to happen, nor were any public hearings held on it. It was sent to the planning board. Uh, the planning board considered it through the month of December and just last week uh, sent back its recommendation to the town board. Um, the planning board's council limited the planning board's review to two very technical sections of the zoning code. Um, and they had them take votes on each sentence of those two technical sections. But essentially the planning board split three, three in terms of recommending that this uh, proposal uh, move forward. It now goes back to the town board, which has 45 days to decide whether it should go to phase two or not. Okay, and what would phase two be? Phase two requires a full EIS type one review. EIS, and environmental it, impact statement? That's correct. So it requires, a, it's a considered once you move to phase two, it's considered a type one action under CEQA and requires a full EIS, mm -hmm. environmental impact statement. Most, uh, the belief is the next stage will take 12 to 18 months to complete. I, I know when I was on my you know town board, um, my experience was that our town officials had no clue what it, you know environmental impact statement really supposed to be about. They would basically check boxes, but not really do any uh, assessment. What, what can people do at this point? How do people get more information? Yep. There, you can get more information uh, by going to the website, sandlakeminingalloneword.com. The next, uh, there are three town board meetings that are going to occur during this 45-day window that they have to act. I suggest that residents go to the town board meetings that are going to be held the 25th of January and February 8th and make your voices heard about your concerns about how this mining expansion will not only affect the surrounding neighborhoods, air and water quality. <coughs> Excuse we're, me. We're out of time. Thank you very much, Tom Citrino, uh, Sand Lake, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson. Mohawk Magazine. So Sand Lake is over in Rensselaer County. Uh, as Tom mentioned, the next town board meeting is on January 25th. It starts at 7 p.m. Uh, if local residents uh, want to speak on the issue, uh, they will have up to five minutes, and we will certainly continue to cover uh, how uh, this issue progresses. For our weekly peace bucket, David Schwartzman of Howard University talks about the war in U War in Ukraine with Mark Dunley. For our Peace Bucket, we're joined by David Schwartzman, who is a professor emeritus at Howard University. Uh, he's also a climate, climate scientist and eco-socialist. Uh, David and I were on a Zoom call recently where we got into a little bit of discussion about the Ukraine. So I thought we would invite David on to uh, share his thoughts with us. So David, why don't you start off with you know, a brief overview of your assessment of, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what we should be doing at this point. 
Yes, thank you. Uh, I, again, I come from a perspective uh, as a climate scientist, a, a climate energy uh, justice advocate. And uh, so that's where I'm coming from. And uh, in a nutshell, this invasion is a catastrophe. Okay, so I believe my position is that the enemy of my enemy, which the enemy I'm speaking of is the military industrial complex, uh, serving fossil capital, pushing us to catastrophic climate change of uh, no order far worse than we now witness, uh, that the enemy of our enemy is our enemy. That is, the Putin regime is another uh, booster of fossil capital and uh, that uh, we should recognize the expansion of NATO eastward, as many um, have pointed out uh, by George Kennan and someone has resulted in uh, creating the context that created this invasion. And in no uncertain terms, this invasion is criminal, it is illegal, and it has empowered the military-industrial complex. It's boosted fossil fuel investments. It's increased the danger of nuclear war. And uh, we need to, the peace movement, whatever differences we have about who's the enemy and who isn't, we should be campaigning for immediate ceasefire negotiations. So that's, in a nutshell, my position. I can elaborate. Now, you mentioned the, the need to, apport, to oppose, you know, the fossil fuel complex, military complex. Many people have said, of course, that the invasion and the impact upon Russian energy supplies in Europe was a, a wake-up call for the need to rapidly transition, you know, away from fossil fuels and, and, and to uh, renewable energy. Is that happening? And if it's not, what can be done to make that happen? Yes. Well, there are signs that that is the one positive outcome, but it's coupled with the problem, very problematic boost in fossil fuel investment. So the reduction in natural gas from the Russian supplies to, let's say, Western Europe has been replaced by na liquid natural gas shipments from the U.S. And at the same time, Russia is now partnering with Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudis are uh, planning uh, to invest in Russian oil fields and uh, just boosting renewable energy supplies in the world is necessary, but not sufficient. If it's coupled with continued greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuel sources, we're heading for climate catastrophe. You know, the two go together. We need to promote a more rapid uh, renewable energy transition globally and curb the fossil fuel uh, emissions, primarily fossil fuel emissions. And that's not only carbon dioxide, but of course, methane, which leaks out of pipelines, 
And uh, uh, that's why natural gas is actually uh, a worse greenhouse gas footprint than coal. And that should be recognized. It's not a bridge to renewable. Now, one of the issues that really divides the peace community in the United States um, is how um, people should support uh, the Ukraine. Most of the main traditional large peace groups like uh, Code Pink says never, never, you know, provide weapons um, to any combatants. Uh, you have to you know, stop the invasion. You don't arm the, the combatants. Uh, others split. You know, there are certainly some peace groups that are just basically Russia is the bad guy. And so whatever, um, you know, President Biden wants to do in terms of sanctions and weapons, you know, we support. Uh, others are like, well, actually, you know, United States and NATO are, are also bad players. But uh, you know, any country has a right to defend itself against an invasion and aggression. And, and so, yes, we should supply uh, weapons to to the Ukraine. Your perspective. Yes. Well, I uh, I uh, side with the right of the Ukraine to defend itself and to uh, and its right of self-determination. Uh, the you know this is a complex uh, issue. It's not, and that's what confuses a lot of people. It's not only a proxy war of U.S. and NATO imperialism, but it's also a struggle by the Ukraine for asserting its right of self determination, which is denied by Putin, by the anti-Leninist Putin, who condemn Lenin for uh, the Soviet constitution, now 100 years old, which asserted the right of self-determination of the Ukraine and the other nations that were, quote, the prison house of the czar. Uh, so he condemned Lenin for recognizing this. And that's in his speeches, uh, which are fully documented. So uh, uh, what what should we how can we deny the, the Ukraine the right to defend itself, particularly as Russian missiles pour down on its cities and kill civilians? You know, they call it collateral damage, just like the U.S. did in Iraq and Vietnam. They call it collateral damage, but nearly um, 500 children have already been killed in the Ukraine by this invasion. Uh, and what is it, 5,000 civilians? Uh, not to speak of the tens of thousands of soldiers on both sides. So this is catastrophic. And uh, uh, so the alternative to this situation is to stop the killing, stop the carnage. And uh, so I will, let's say, I don't... Uh, in terms of the your question, I think we need to focus and unite around what the solution is, and that is immediate ceasefire and negotiations. 
and re with the recognition of the right of Ukraine to the right of self-determination as a nation, which is denied by Russia. Okay, we have about 45 seconds left. So yes. cl close on observation. People want uh, more information. Yes. And, and how do we, in fact, get the Biden administration and Congress to support such a ceasefire in 30 seconds? Well, I would, I would point to, uh, just as a source, Dan Glassbrook's a counterpunch article from March of, this, of 2022 to document how uh, U.S. and NATO uh, actually laid the bait for this invasion. We should people should be informed about what the context of this uh, war is, and I think we have we should unite around uh, what many of the peace groups are already saying. You know that the money for this war should go to much better uh, use. That is to meet the human needs uh, of our population as well as other people around the world. Well, so, thank you, uh, David, David Schwartzman. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So uh, unfortunately, um, the divisions within the American peace movement over the situation in Ukraine um, seems to be increasing, and particularly to the extent that uh, there really is a movement in Ukraine for um, self-determination versus whether Ukraine, in fact, has been a long-term proxy for the United States uh, and NATO. I, I will mention that uh, UNAC, United National Anti-War Coalition, uh, did hold a series of uh, anti-war demonstrations uh, around the country this, this weekend. Uh, there was some complaints. It wasn't focused enough on um, acknowledging that what the uh, Russia has done uh, was in fact illegal, but we will continue on our Wednesday Peace Bucket to cover uh, the issue of Ukraine. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sally Becker. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. In this time of climate emergency, it is really important to find regener regenerative energy sources. Biochar is, if done regeneratively, is a carbon negative energy source. And Alex Briggs has an upcoming presentation on his biochar kiln. Joining me now is Alex Briggs, who's finishing up a residency at the Center of Gravity with the presentation on biochar, decentralized economies, and the maker movement. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi there. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. So for listeners who don't know, where is the Center of Gravity? It's based in Troy, and what should we know about it? It is on 3rd Avenue in Troy, and 
it's a part of the maker movement, which I feel like was a big thing around like 2012 or, or so. Maker spaces started gathering together tools of every kind of trade. And with RPI up the hill, uh, Troy ended up getting really awesome one with all these machines that can pretty much make anything. So they had a residency program and it was really easy to apply. And they've given me incredible support for building this prototype for a biochar kiln that I've been thinking about uh, for a long time. So a biochar kiln, what is that? And how does this fit into the maker movement? A biochar kiln is something that heats up some sort of biomass, uh, wood chips in my case, until it drives all of the hydrogen out of the hydrocarbon. And so then what's left is the carbon, and that's biochar. There's lots of different pyrolysis gas or syngas. There's lots of names. There's lots of different things. Um, Charcoal is very similar to biochar, but biochar is a separate thing. So it can get kind of confusing and muddled. Um, But at its simplest thing, it's just a kind of oven that cooks wood chips until uh, the smoke comes out of them. And that smoke is mostly hydrogen. And so my one day goal is that that hydrogen then could be put in a fuel cell and actually could power people's homes while also heating them um, and doing this in really an incredibly efficient way. Um, So it's the hydrogen that is stored as fuel, but also the wood chips that are left over are also fuel. Is that right? Yeah, the wood chips are separated into a gaseous hydrogen, which is a gaseous fuel. And then the biochar, which is a fuel if you choose to burn it, but you also can use it if it's uh, made correctly as a soil amendment. And I think that's a really interesting piece of this. And um, there's so many interesting pieces, but this is the only carbon negative energy system. And there's some tricky things about it. In this presentation I've got coming up, I've got a graph, which basically shows that it takes a lot of wood or a lot of phytomass, a lot of the sun's energy stored in plants and in biomass, It takes a lot of it to provide for our modern standard of of energy. But there's also so many efficiencies in it where you can, if you have your kind of a little power plant inside your home, then you can start cooking with it and you can heat with it and you can heat your water and you could all do all of those things all together. And in that way, actually have the net load, the total amount of energy that Uh, you require could be much lower. So you mentioned if you have like a power plant in your home. So this sounds a little bit inaccessible for the everyday individual? Not really. That's the incredible thing about it. Like the technology hasn't been developed to the point where you can just have a little fuel cell inside your home. But actually in Europe, they do have that. Like you can plug a natural gas line into this power plant, into this fuel cell, and it just looks like a washing machine but it actually replaces your hot water heater and you no longer are connected to grid electricity. That's the incredible thing is that for the energy that you were already putting into heating water, you can get electricity also. Um, And then on top of that, you could be producing that gas, not from fossil fuels, but from 
something that actually takes carbon out of the atmosphere. And is it right that this technology has actually been around for quite some time? I believe there's evidence that indigenous communities use biochar in the Amazon. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Some of the most fertile soils in the world, it's called Terra Preta. Um, sorry if I was butchering that pronunciation. But in the Amazon, in rainforests, typically the soil is very sandy and all of the nutrients have been soaked up into the trees. And so it's very hard to farm in in any way in rainforests uh, for this reason. But there are these pockets of incredibly rich soil in the western edge of the Amazon. And people realize that uh, it is, like so many things, actually an indigenous product that was created intentionally for the purpose of, of growing food. And biochar is really complicated. You can use it in this way as a soil amendment. You can also actually use it to fix heavy metals and different toxins out of the ground. And depending on exactly how it's made, it can do different things. I know that the main difference between charcoal and biochar is that you have to heat it for a longer time at or and or at a higher temperature in order to drive all of the hydrogen, all of the smoke, all of the what are called volatiles, all those gaseous parts out of it. So it's just pure carbon. And to my understanding, it's surface area. It's got this crazy structure that just has an incredible amount of, of surface area. And uh, that's the key to being used um, as a filtration system and creation or all these different things. I can't say more than that on exactly how to make good biochar. The hydrogen side of it is the part that I've researched enough at this point. So biochar kiln is the subject of your presentation on January 24th. You also have a workshop happening on February 18th. So could you talk about the Arduino microcontroller? Did I say that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so a microcontroller um, is a little circuit board that's compatible with, with computers and is made to be really easy to use. So you can hook up your own little sensor systems um, and also simple automation kind of things. So it's a really useful thing for lots of applications. You can do lots of cool like home efficiency stuff by by controlling different temperatures and, and systems in your home. Uh, I'll be using it to gather data on my prototype so that I can make the most of it and really engineer a better model for my next one. And the workshop is on the 18th of February at the Center of Gravity. All this information will be available at the Tech Valley Center of Gravity website. We'll link that website in the details of, of this story. That would be great. And I think that participants will actually get their own microcontroller, as well as a couple uh, being available to be rented out. Well, thank you so much, Alex Briggs, for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. What would you like to leave our listeners with? What do you think is the most important thing to understand about the work that you're doing? Um, I think we're in a really special moment when more cooperative models and more efficient models are 
coming to the forefront. And a lot of the mistakes of a capitalist economy are being re-examined. Re and I think that hydrogen economies, and in particular biomass hydrogen, is one of these ideas that have been kind of pushed out by big oil and big business. And now I think there's an opportunity to open source and decentralize our systems. And I think that this is one of uh, the real gems that could really help the world in huge ways. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So for more info on these events, you can go to tvcog.net, find the events on the calendar. I will say that after looking at the issue of biochar over the last 15 years, I still cannot say whether it should be opposed or supported. I will say many people list hydrogen, particularly blue hydrogen, as a false climate solution, uh, along with paralysis uh, and, and biomass. Many climate activists do support biochar, but many others have raised questions. Uh, Biofuel Watch, which, like many, are opposed to the various forms of bioenergy, argues that with respect to biochar, that more study is still needed, including the impact on the soil and plants from application of biochar and the impact on land use to supply the biomass to create the biochar. Up next, we're back at the Troy Public Library, where Bria Barthel talks about new books for kids with Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, back once again with Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services at Troy Public Library's main branch. Carol, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks, Bria. Um, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, and I see we're starting out with some interesting books for you to suggest to our listeners. Let's get started. All right. Well, um, the first book I want to talk about is um, related to climate change. It's called To Change a Planet, and it's by Christina Suntorvat, and um, it's a picture book um, with depicting um, climate change. Um, and it does this in a really interesting way. You see the Earth as a circular globe, but then around it is this quilt, and the quilt is comprised of plastic bottles and fossil fuels and other things that um, go into um, punching holes in the ozone in the air. And so it's very interesting, um, and at the same time, um, it's a call to action. So the weight of the blanket of, of these things surrounding the earth um, is very clear, but yet the book offers hope. The illustrations are opaque watercolors, and they follow a brown-skinned child throughout the scenarios as he witnesses the consequences unfolding, um, both harmful and promising. And I would say this is a good book for ages four through eight. Um, it's told in very simple text, Let me just read a little bit. Our planet, big, tough, dependable. Our planet has spun through eons of time, mere moments ago we arrived. And you can see sort of a primordial scene. Um, and throughout the book, this one boy reappears, um, this brown-skinned child with a green scarf. And if you're reading this to a child, they could certainly um, find the boy in just about every picture. It's kind of like an I Spy book in that way, which is always fun. 
and very colorful, uh, saturated pictures for the most part, too. Yes, and um, it's it's gripping. It's a sobering kind of book, and yet it's lovely and, and hopeful at the same time. So it looks like there's one page there as you were flipping about our planet seems tough, but it is fragile. And then there's another place that says that we can change it. Yes, because it talks about when you have one person and one person and one person and how each of us alone can't do this, but together um, we, can, we can make change. And so in that sense, of course, it's very hopeful. And what I really love about it is in the back matter, um, what we call the back matter, it's a section um, and it's not an index, but it's a list of ideas about um, what is climate change and can answer children's questions about maybe what can we do to help and how do we know this. And it explains some of the science and um, how specifically um, the earth will be affected by rising temperature. And uh, so I love this. It's a beautiful book and an important message. What's next? Oh, the next is a biography um, for, for young children, I would say ages four to eight. And it's called Keeper of the Light, Juliet Fish Nichols Fights the San Francisco Fog. And this book, um, it reads like a journal. And this is based on a real person. And this is her real story of how she manned the lighthouse um, on this island off the coast of San Francisco. And uh, there's more um, beautiful watercolors on each page as you pour through the book. And her biggest challenge was fighting the San Francisco fog. And you'll notice that the soft watercolor illustrations really complement the narrative of how she's spending her days. And there's a couple dates that really stand out. Um, 1902, when she begins um, in this position, and 1906, which depicts the San Francisco earthquake and what it was like for her. Um, and interestingly enough, her mother was also a lighthouse keeper, not too far away at another lighthouse. So this is an actual person, but the journal entries are her journals or they are fiction? Um, they're adapted from her journals. So, um, so it's kind of a mix of both. Um, and I'm, let me read you just a little to give you the flavor of it. October 6, 1902. Today, fog pushes through the Golden Gate, spilling over the headlands and into the bay. It swallows sailing ships, freighters, ferries, and steamboats. It's time. I grab the crank of the fog bell machine and turn it to tighten the chain. As it unwinds, a mallet strikes the giant bell. Clang, clang, two loud rings. Every 15 seconds, warn passing ships to keep away from the rocks. Four hours later, the fog is still thick. I wind the chain again and again until the fog lifts and floats away. I get little sleep. It's a beautiful book, lovely images, interesting story. It's nice seeing a woman taking care of the lighthouse and doing all sorts of things. What age group would you say this is aimed at? This is for, I would say, ages four to eight. Great. And third? 
I have a, a picture book, um, which also relates to climate change. And it's called Just You and Me, and it's called Remarkable Relationships in the Wild. The cover is amazing. It's sort of a purple background with a giant crocodile's mouth going around the words, and me. Yes. What I love about this book um, is that it's a wonderful pairing. It's um, two different types of pairs, really. There's the pairing of species. It's all about relationships in the wild between plants and pl plants and animals, and in some cases, animals and other animals. And on the one page, you'll have the verse. It'll say, just you and me, just me and you, we're perfect pairs. Here's what we do. And then on the opposite page, um, it actually goes on to explain about symbiosis, which is uh, essentially what the book is about. Some animals and plants form lifelong partnerships with other animals and plants, a relationship known as symbiosis. Then they cooperate and help each other in the most unlikely ways. And so you'll have a poem on one side, and then on the other, um, it'll explain the relationship um, that relates to the poem. Given our fractured culture these days, it's nice to see something talking about collaboration. Yes, um, that's really how we survive as a species, and in fact, how we are social beings. What's interesting is in the very... Um, back of the book, at the, near the last part, it says, humans cannot survive without the natural resources of Earth, such as water, air, soil, and plants, just to name a few. So we must protect Earth's resources by keeping the environment clean and healthy, harvesting thoughtfully, and practicing conservation. Another great, important message. And we have about a minute and a half left. The final book? The final book is a young adult novel. And it's called Bravely, and it's based on the Disney movie Brave, which is about um, a young red-haired princess who um, decides that she needs some change in her life. And the next thing she knows, um, she's, she's visited by, or rather the castle is visited by a spirit, or rather a god, who decides um, it's time to get out the rot and things that have been stagnant must be destroyed, including her family. And so she chases this guy, not knowing what he's doing, but he wouldn't identify himself. And so she chases him and then is visited by a goddess who proposes that she and the god have a bargain. And the bargain is that she must prove that her family is capable of changing so that her family won't be obliterated along with dead leaves and other things uh, which have grown stagnant. And so she has a year to prove this, and he has a year to show examples of the ruin that awaits them if they don't. And so like any of Maggie Stiefvater's books, um, it's wonderful fantasy. And if you liked some of her other series, such as The Raven Boys, anybody that likes her writing um, would definitely love this book, and I've, I've loved it. Well, thank you. That's quite a variety of wonderful books. These are all available in the Young People's Services section of the Troy Public Library's main branch at 102nd Street. And if people want more information, the website is? www.thetroylibrary.org. 
Thanks again. That's Carol Roberts from Troy Public Library and Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Good talking with you, Carol. Thanks, Bria. Up next, Willie spoke to Alan, Alan McLeod, Director of Volunteers for the Regional Food Bank at the Capital District Area Labor Federation's third annual Day of Service on Martin Luther King Day. This is Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent, and I'm here at the uh, Northeast Regional Food Bank today. And today is a special day, it's a holiday, it's uh, Reverend Martin Luther King's birthday. And I'm here at the Regional Food Bank where there's a lot of people uh, volunteering to help out. And I have as my guest to talk about the Regional Food Bank and the volunteers is Alan McLeod, uh, who's the volunteer coordinator. And how you doing? How about yourself today? So, Alan, I know this is Martin Luther King's birthday, and, and it seemed like you had a whole lot of people back there uh, helping out. But tell me something about the Northeastern Regional Food Bank. Uh, here at the Northeastern Regional Food Bank of New York, uh, we distribute food across 23 counties in the state of New York. On average, we service about 350,000 individuals on a monthly basis, and we cover almost 40% of the landmass of New York State. And uh, we rely almost 100% upon volunteers to sort through our donations that we receive five days a week. Well, how do you get this massive food bank out to the uh, public? Well, it all starts with uh, the donations that come in, either through uh, food drives, individuals, neighborhoods, or we rely very heavily upon our retail uh, donations. So things that stores deem unsellable, they'll send to us instead of sending out into the landfill. And it comes here, gets sorted good from bad, and then categorized. And from there, it gets distributed out to 800-plus non-for-profits throughout the uh, 23 counties. Uh, so anything from a food pantry to a soup kitchen, churches, shelters, schools, they all receive the goods from us and then distribute them out to the individuals in the community from there. So what are some of the uh, partners you have that you know call on you to get food from? Uh, we partner up with a lot of agencies within the uh, Capital District. The uh, Capital District Food Pantry Correlation is a big partner of ours, Salvation Army, um, countless, countless churches throughout the entire 23 counties, um, more than 800 partners that uh, rely upon us to get goods from us. Today is Martin Luther King's birthday. Tell me something about volunteering for that this day. Uh, today is actually the uh, biggest day of the year for our volunteer department. Uh, MLK's birthday is a nationally recognized day of service, so we do have quite a lot of individuals and groups that love to reach out to us and book out the entire day. Uh, today we were lucky enough to have the Federal uh, Labor Federation unions with us today, and they are uh, coming strong with all shifts throughout the day from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. Um, it is the most popular day to volunteer by far. I know that I've uh, received requests for 60 plus kindergartners to come and volunteer today. But uh, unfortunately, we only have so much room. <laughs> and mm -hmm. while we appreciate the enthusiasm, we can only host so many people at one time. Mm -hmm. so. Alan, what kind of food do you get from different places? 
Uh, just about anything you can imagine. Uh, we do primarily focus on dry goods, so boxes, cans, pasta, rice, things like that, that have a long shelf life. But also we do uh, sort through and receive in donations five days a week of uh, perishables, such as fresh produce, dairy, milk, eggs, items such as that. So anything that anybody sells and they're willing to donate, we will try to find a home for. We do frozen food as well and non-food items of all categories. So we try to get our hands in as many things as possible. You know, and I see some of the food has some of the major stores on it. So you, you get food from those entities? Oh, yes, sir. We are uh, very lucky at this point in time. Pretty much every retail uh, corporation in the area has partnered up with us. Uh, today we are actually working through a very large donation, thousands and thousands of pounds from Hannaford. Uh, we receive in large amounts from Target, Walmart, Sam's Club. Uh, price Chopper and all the local places as well. So we're very fortunate to be partnered up with so many large retail environments. Now you say you, this is the Northeast Regional Food Bank. So there are food banks in other states or areas? Uh, yes, sir, yeah. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we cover 23 counties in the Northeast of New York. Uh, then after that, there's a food, food bank in Syracuse that covers the western half of the state. I believe New York City has uh, about two or three food banks within the actual city itself. And we're actually part of Feeding America, which is a coalition, coalition of food banks across the U.S. Mm -hmm. So not only are we a part of it, but I know even the tiny food bank in Macon, Georgia, is a part of Feeding America. And so we are connected with food banks and partners throughout the entire country. Right. So as the uh, volunteer coordinator, what are your duties and responsibilities? Uh, I manage and coordinate uh, volunteer services, so I help schedule individuals as well as groups. And also I uh, train the volunteers on sorting the good from the bad and how to box up and do quality control on whatever project we happen to be working that day. Um, I prefer to look at my job as to enable volunteers to do what they want to do, educate them on food waste and insecurity, and give a little bit of entertainment too. So. So what is the importance of sorting the food? Uh, not all of the donations we receive in are good or healthy to eat. So unfortunately, we do need to go through and separate some bad items from the good items. And uh, that's what we rely upon the volunteers to go through and remove the bad items from the good items. And then we'll uh, do broad categories such as cookies, crackers, soup, fruits and vegetables after that. What do a person have to do if they want to volunteer? Uh, all they have to do is go to regionalfoodbank.net backslash volunteers and there's a link you can click on that will take you through our profile process. Once you create a profile, then you'll be able to view all the volunteer events that we host throughout seven days a week. Um, from there, you'll be able to see the ones with openings that will allow you to sign up. And if you wish to uh, bring a group, whether it's work or church or scout related, uh, feel free to email us at volunteers at regionalfoodbank.net and we'll be happy to set up any kind of requests from there. So what other activities do y'all do besides sorting the food and distributing? 
Uh, let's see, it's very seasonal. We actually have a land bank, uh, land farm over in Patroon uh, near Thatcher State Park. And of course, not during the winter as it is now, but during spring and such, we do have uh, seed transplants, greenhouses, items like that. We team up with local orchards during the fall to do apple gleaning and uh, items such as that as well. So if someone wants to contribute towards this, what should they contribute? Should they buy food or groceries or should they give money or what? Uh, we're happy to receive any kind of support that somebody is able and willing to give us. Um, but I will say that we are able to stretch a dollar much further with our manufacturing partners than somebody would be able to at a local grocery store. So we can actually on average get about four meals per dollar. Uh, so financial donations are the most effective, uh, but we will gladly accept a single can of green beans or if somebody even wants to just volunteer for two hours, we will gladly accept their time and energy. Uh, we're not picky about the kind of help we receive. So, And I noticed uh, there's a lot of trucks outside, a lot of carriers. Uh, are those carriers you, you distribute to those very places or people come and get that stuff? It's actually a mixture. Uh, so we'll have local uh, food pantries, soup kitchens, et cetera, come and pick up here. We have a dedicated, uh, what we call our point of sale, where they come and pick up their orders. But for the orders that go north of Plattsburgh or south of the Hudson Valley or something, we do have a fleet of semi-trucks and a large uh, staff of drivers who go out at 5 a.m. five days a week. And uh, sometimes they're on the road for 12, 14 hours, but they get out there and do multiple deliveries five days a week. And okay. What been the feedback from people getting the food or feedback in terms of the need? Uh, generally, it's overwhelmingly positive. Uh, we've received in plenty of cards from individuals, from churches, from uh, schools. We receive a lot of positive feedback for our backpack program with the schools. And people are just very grateful to have any kind of assistance, you know. And uh, we try to provide as much as we can with a smile and without judgment, you know. So people are in need these days and they're happy to receive some help. Has there been any time where there was more need than or less need? Uh, things increased dramatically uh, with the pandemic. Poor economy and the pandemic. It's been uh, a definite game changer. How long has the uh, regional bank been in existence? I believe about 36 or 37 years. Yeah, I believe so. Um, longer than I've been alive. <laughs> How was it started? There's a little bit of uh, mystery around the oh. start of it, but it started off as a very, very small operation, right. and we've continued to grow and balloon over the past, especially 10 years. We've seen substantial growth in the past five to 10 years. Right. Yeah. So, Alan, why don't you tell our uh, audience how, where you located, and again, how could, could they uh, participate if they wanted to? Uh, so we're located at 965 Albany Shaker Road in Latham, New York. And if you guys want to come and volunteer, uh, feel free to visit regionalfoodbank.net backslash volunteers. And you're helping people. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that's uh, Alan McLeod. I want to thank you. Alan McLeod, who's the volunteer coordinator for the Northeast Regional Food Bank. Thank you, Alan. Uh, thank you for jumping in and helping sort food and getting the word out there about us.
And that was uh, Willie Terry. Um, as someone who ran a network of food pantries and soup kitchens for 28 years, uh, I know people need volunteers all year round and particularly people who come on a regular basis. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. I'm Mark Dunley. Our engineer was Kaylin McPherson. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors today included Freya Barthel, Willie Terry, Sally Becker, and myself. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. <laughs>